Hello, 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 and welcome to the Analytive Podcast. We are back this year with season two. It's been a minute. There's a lot that's happened with Analytive. We continue to grow, expand our team, serve our clients. And so uh, the podcast has had to be put on the back burner for a little bit, but we're back. And today I couldn't be more excited to have a very special guest who agreed to do the podcast with us, uh, Rory Lewis. Rory is a former special forces operator, has an engineering bachelor's degree, a JD, right, law degree, PhD in computer science. He's an advisor and board member to several companies, but the, his big focus is on artificial intelligence and specifically around artificial consciousness, which we talk a good bit about in this episode. Uh, in this episode, we cover kind of the state of AI, of artificial intelligence. How will it help or hurt humanity, right? What are we seeing? Uh, how close are we to general AI? We talk a little bit about that. Uh, and what AI means for you and your job and me and my job. So I, I'm honored that Rory took the time to talk to me about this. It's an uh, a area that I don't know very much about, but was very, very curious. And so Rory was very gracious with his time. Uh, I hope this is valuable. I hope this is useful to you as you see kind of how the world is changing and will change over the next decade or two. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to uh, give you my conversation with Rory Lewis around artificial intelligence. Awesome. Well, Rory, thank you for taking some time to come on the Analytive Podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you this morning. You're, you're more than welcome, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So can we start with your background? Uh, professor, uh, board member, lots of things. But I'd love to get sort of a, a story of Rory of, you know, past few years of your career, how you kind of got to where you are. Sure. Uh, I... Um, I am from South Africa. Uh, I, uh, I, we, had, we had a draft there in South Africa for the, the military. Um, so I was in the Angolan War. Uh, I was in Special Forces. I had a parachute accident. I came, and at the time, I was also running the 800-meter. So I thought it would be good to, my grandfather thought it would be very good to have my 21st birthday party in America which I did with my un uncle. And uh, I then began to try and run for the 800 meter at the Santa Monica Track Club um, for two Olympic trials, uh, made the trials, but didn't even come close to making the final. Then decided with that going on that um, I should go to a community college and uh, maybe do architecture, but I enjoyed the mathematics a lot. And um, at, Pierce, at Pierce Los Angeles Community College, I then, uh, with my wife and my little girl, we decided to go to Montana, uh, to, Mon to Montana State University, and I switched from architecture through to electrical engineering. And at about that time, in the late 1980s, um, the notion of doing computer engineering, which is the microprocessor, electri the electrical engineering going through microprocessors, was fascinating. And there were only about three schools that were doing microprocessor electrical engineering in the late 80s, and that was MIT, um, Stanford, and also Syracuse. And I wasn't smart enough to get into to MIT, but I, but I did wangle myself into, into Syracuse University. And that's uh, where they had the Cray machines and still had to be in electrical engineering, but at the junior year, we were able to then go, some of us were able to make it into microprocessor electrical engineering. 
I then decided to go to law school. I was very interested in Intel versus AMD and um, the fact that there were lawyers out there that could litigate the circuitry that is on a microprocessor, I found to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, I then um, found myself at Fulbright and Jaworski, uh, not because of my intellectual ability at all, but because there simply weren't any other s- students for th- the summertime that had any law students as summer interns that were also microprocessor electrical engineers. So it catapulted me very fast into the high echelons of, of law working with senior partners uh, right at the very front edge because whenever they'd go into meetings with AMD, um, they had to have someone that was that was able to understand. And even though some of the some of the lawyers in San Francisco um, were electrical engineers, when they did the electrical engineering, it was before the transistor. So we have to remember that the transistor had only been out for eight, nine years by the time that I did mine. Um, So many of the senior lawyers that did have electrical engineering degrees still were not familiar with how a microprocessor worked. I then realized that I enjoyed being an engineer and doing the mathematics more than the confrontation of law and the arguments of law and the the subjectivity of law. I was very fortunate to then be able to work with a rather famous, um, well, he is absolutely famous in the world of mathematics, but outside of the world of mathematics, not too famous. His name was the big new Russ at, um, at um, University, uh, University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Uh, his his um, mentor in Warsaw uh, was Pawlak and Pawlak and Lafayette Adair both worked on on rough set theory and fuzzy logic. Basically, the degrees of saying yes or no. So not necessarily always saying yes or no, but fuzz, fuzzy logic was the intense mathematics of going from a one to a zero, and rough set theory was the same thing, but completely different alg- algorithms. But so even though Lotfiz Adair and uh, Zedislaw Pawlak were um, competing, they were the best of friends. You see them together at all the conferences. They stayed at one another's houses. And um, I was very fortunate to be able to study directly with one of his two PhDs, um, Zabig Nuras. And I st- studied with him from 2002 to about um, 2005. It was pretty intense. Uh, and then I was offered a tenure track position here at University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Uh, my, dis- my dissertation was essentially uh, the mathematical theory of machine intelligence, basically how to make a machine become smarter without human beings. And I went and got a job here as a, as a tenure track where I still am here in um, Colorado Springs um, since 2008 and worked a lot at Anxious Medical School uh, with um, neuro, uh, uh, working in the neurosurgery ward, helping to, put, helping to develop brain implants where my AI would be able to um, tell patients when they're going to have a seizure. Uh, I then took a sabbatical about three years ago, four years ago at the Pentagon, 
working in computational neuroscience um, and can't talk about this too much, but essentially um, putting sentient understanding into military humanoids and military nurses so that rather than just being able to have the AI, that they have a form of sentience. And that is where most of my work is now, being able to get a machine to have a sense of being. Sure. Yeah. That's all that's fascinating, Rory. I, I want to dig in, but let's maybe dive into sort of that last point. Like what is, you know, for, I guess, a lay person, right. Um, you know, when we think about AI and specifically what you're doing with sentience, like what is, what does that mean? What does that look like? I guess, can you maybe define that a little more? Cause I think a lot of people have, you know, a Terminator or, you know, some, you know, Hollywood version. How is it similar yeah. to that? How's it different? Well, I'll first jump right ahead and then go to a three-year human being. Um, a nurse, a nurse humanoid at this point would just walk up to a patient and uh, drop off their food or give them water or be able to see if their water is empty and give them water. But to have sentience, that nurse will then be able to have a capacity to say, should I crack a joke with this person or hold his hand or let him be or just have them talk or have small talk? Or when I say have them talk, just let them talk about their, about their life or to talk about how much pain they're in. So it's very difficult for a machine from a predicate calculus to do what a little three-year-old can do. My daughters, when they were three-year-old, with three or four years old, would say, Daddy, why is the sky blue? From a neurological standpoint, their brain is saying something that is doing something that machines cannot do, which is to say, I know, I don't know. So from a mm -hmm. predicate calculus point of view, that's incredibly difficult to, to program two completely juxtaposed predicates against one another and make a machine adapt to it. So when you walk out of your house, if you see that, that the street is wet and you look up into the sky and you see it's blue and there's been no rain. And then you look at the, t you look at your watch and you realize uh, today is not the day that my sprinklers turned on. But then you do see a few hundred yards down the road, you see a, a water truck, even though you've not seen it making the streets wet, you are able to have an abstract deduction. Okay, that water truck was what watered the streets. A, that is sentient understanding that lemons are sour. That, that if things drop to the ground, when you as a small two or three-year-old see your mom drop something or you drop something to the ground, it's going to be predictive that if you have a ball outside on the lawn two or three days later and you drop that ball, that the ball is going to go to the ground. It's not going to go up in the air. So one more example of this is a... I can't name it, but a, a three-star military general that was working with Google um, 
and had been working for had been working on a, on some rather secret top secret re research um, about and you may recall this Tyler about um, about five or six years ago Google came out and said we have looked at three trillion cats on the internet and two and a half trillion dogs on the internet. And our system is now trained so well with deep neural networks that it can even discern between a dog and a wolf. And I was quite amazed at that, that a machine could discern between a dog and a wolf. And this goes back to sentient understanding, but to just show my point. Um, then about three years ago, uh, a, a group at a university in New Zealand was using the Google deep neural networks to um, look to, to look at animals and to see what those different animals were. And it kept on saying that a Russian red squirrel was a wolf. And so they, things got back to Google that the system was saying that a squirrel was a wolf. And because a deep neural network trains itself without a human being, so rather than a human being saying, this is a volcano, this is a volcano, uh, this is a lake, uh, the machine just learns these things. And it took about seven months for a lot of people at Google to try and figure out why it was saying that the squirrel was a wolf. And it turned out that all the pictures of wolves had snow in the background and the machine had just simply said, Hey, every time there's snow, it's a wolf. So when it saw the squirrel with snow in the background, it just said, that's a wolf. Oh, got it. So this three-star general at Google closed the entire project up. He said, I'm not going to put the lives of 1500 men into what is no more intelligent than my three-year-old granddaughter with an iPad. And those words have resonated through the industry because a three-year-old girl with an iPad can tell the difference between a squirrel and a wolf. She has sentient understanding. Someone is looking at what the brain is saying and then discerning last use case that we use in that is being used in the Chinese military in the Russian military and also here in the in the United States as far as sentient understanding and that is that we have a mother in a glade in a forest looking at a house burning down there's no one there to help her she can hear her two children screaming out to her her two infant children screaming out to her mom help us her brain, her AI, has calculated that since it knows the, this is a super 
this is a supercalifragilistic brain now, okay, Tyler? It's, right. it, has, it has got the porosity of the wood, of the beams that hold up the roof. It's got the thickness of it. It's got the amount of um, H2O that is in the wood. It, it, it knows exactly what is the weight bearing down on it. It knows the amount of oxygen in the room and the heat of the flames and the amount of time that the heat has been on different placements of all these beams. And the AI has predicted that in, in exactly 20 seconds, the roof is going to collapse. She, not her AI, she, as in Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. She, her sentience, looks at what the brain is outputting and says, I don't care that you're saying that the roof is going to collapse. I'm going to override you. In fact, I'm going to do more than override you. I'm going to have you make my quadriceps and my shoulder muscles move in such a way that I'm going to run into that house and pick up my kids and run out with them. That is the difference between the iPad between the computer saying that a squirrel is a wolf and a young girl as that mother was once young saying, no, I know, I don't know why the sky is blue. So I'm going to ask my dad, I don't know um, uh, what this animal is here, but it is not a wolf. It's some kind of squirrel that I've never seen that my brain has never seen before. I don't care that my brain is saying, don't run into, my into the house and rescue my kids. I am. So it's a separate op operating system that looks in abstract terms as to a sense of id, a sense of being, a sense of wanting to stay alive, and assessing and knowing that it can override what comes out of its AI. Gotcha. Um, well, when I say gotcha, I, I generally understand. Obviously, this is crazy complex. So I guess a couple of follow-ups. So it seems like in your example, the, the wolf uh, example, that's more of, I guess, what we, maybe we would call machine learning, right? You just show a picture and it you know, uses a neural net to sort of figure out like, okay, if I see enough wolves, you know, all these photos have something in common, I figure out what's in common and I go there. Whereas what we're talking about is, I guess, maybe true AI in a sense of- Yes. Yeah, so um, so you are you are you are correct. So the so the portion as we make our machines smarter and faster and bigger of being able to train off of trillions of pictures of of dogs and wolves, um, that there 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 is no abstract thought there. So even though it can come up with an enormous amount of information, probably much faster than a human being, because it has no sentient understanding, it is not as intelligent as a three-year-old girl with an iPad. Even though it can calculate more, it doesn't have the wherewithal, the sentience, the, the consciousness of a, of, a, of a young human being. Gotcha. And because, you know, when we talk about AI socially, right, I think a lot of people will say, look at machine learning and be like, oh, it's AI. It's amazing. You know, the that machines can recognize that, which truly is amazing. I don't want to diminish that in any way. But also then when we talk about a future kind of powered by AI, um, it seems to me that what 
that requires a sort of that true sentient understanding, not just machine learning. Machine learning is helpful, but at the end of the day, humans are still going to have to figure out how to make those decisions. Whereas with sentience, I feel like maybe that's when we cross the bridge into, I don't know, more of almost like passing the Turing test type stuff. Is that is that correct? Yes. So, so as artificial consciousness and sent, sentience is now starting to take place, um, we are looking at um, no matter what AI system is connected to it, it is still, in a sense, a soul. It is still a, it is, it's, it has two operating systems. One is with its AI and one op- completely mutually exclusive operating system that is for its sentience. Now we can attach to the sentience um, a AI system that is dumb as that is as dumb as a, a toast toaster, or we can attach to that exact same soul consciousness, um, an incredibly powerful brain. Um, but that doesn't ever take away from the fact that no matter or to adapt that to human beings, no matter how intelligent someone is, we all um, have a right of being. We all we all have a soul. We all have a right to vote. We all have our own consciousness, regardless of how intelligent or stupid we are. Um, where, where, whereas a machine, um, at this point, the, every machine is just is uh, is is just a is just a machine, and of course, in the military, there have been many questions that I've been I had to sit down in front of some very powerful men and women and and answer questions to what you're alluding to that. Can the consciousness portion of a military humanoid um, can it override? And one of my rather snarkish but respectful responses at this one committee hearing was seemed to resonate very well, and it goes something like like this: We know that the complexity of an ant colony when you step away from it is as, as, as complex as the human liver. There's different portions of the ant colony that um, they all work together. And that entire ant colony is an, an incredibly complex living, living system. But general, we are programming the individual ants. And most ants that are in that ant colony can only do one thing when they leave the ant colony, and that is to meet up with an is to, is to smell the secretions of where other ants have gone. And when they meet up with an ant that is walking in the other direction, that ant says to them, hey, I have not found food. Don't follow my secretion. Or, dude, I felt I found a whole bunch of food. Follow my secretions and that'll lead you to food. General, I have not programmed those ants to know how many moons are going around Saturn. I've not programmed those ants to be able to predict 
who's going to win the NFL. The ants don't even know that the NFL exists. The ants don't know that the that the that Saturn exists because I've programmed the ants to only be able to smell the secretions of another ant when they get to food, pick it up and take it back home. They know nothing else. Their ability to say, I am going to make a skyrocket and go to one of those moons in Saturn is never going to happen because I've never coded it to do that. And they will only run their sentience to the degree that I've coded it. But from a whole, we have a humanoid that is able to make unilateral decisions on its operating system's output without having to go to a human being. Gotcha. Can you kind of say that again? I I get the ant example, um, but I kind of missed the bridge between those two concepts. So the ant colony, I guess, is analogous to to what? To to the um, to the consciousness, or the, to the to the to what is the sentience, to the consciousness operating system. Um, it is going to be. As you listen to me talk, you are listening to what your brain is interpreting, all of the meanings to what I'm saying. But you as a human being are aware of your surroundings and where I am and that I'm another human being. Um, it, whereas, the, it, whereas, the, whereas your brain is just interpreting what I'm saying, but your awareness of your id, of you, is the complexity mm-hmm. of that ant colony. And as we synthesize it, um, it's not, the machine's sen- um, sentience is not going to be able to do more than the scope of what we have coded its consciousness to be able to be aware of. Okay. That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, And so, you know, asking future predictions are always tough, but anytime we talk about AI, like how uh, close are we to the sentience? I mean, is it something, and again, you know, maybe, you know, stuff you can't share, right. But Uh, are Um, we, are we right on the edge? You know, are we 50 years away? Like, I guess, you know, are we making meaningful progress on this? Typically what is presented at a white paper in conferences that starts to get a following, it'll be about nine to 12 years for it to come out into the public. Typically, that's about the standard of time. And right now, we are at a point where most of the sentient um, work is being done in military labs or in VA hospital, but, but again, top secret compartmentalized, which is the fifth highest level that one can that one can be at, um, but of course, some of my PhDs. In fact, the board right behind me here um, is looking at having a microprocessor be able to um, able to correct itself, and then right next to that, we will be looking at having another operating system looking at what that microprocessor is out, is outputting. To maybe give you what is in the public domain, as far as military humanoids are concerned, 
And um, so we know that China, Russia, and us, we all have robots. We all have military robots that can do all kind, kinds of things. They can parachute. They don't need oxygen. They can land. They can shoot weapons. They can drive cars. They can steal cars. They can pick a lock. They can go into a lock, in, into a house. They can, you can give them a weapon and they'll walk. You can give them a bullet and they'll walk in between a bunch of weapons and choose the ones that will work with that. Their aim is perfect. Um, after two or, two or three shots, they know how to um, find electricity and recharge themselves. They know hundreds of different languages, but in a hypothetical scenario, if we have a Russian humanoid that lands in Central Park and there's 5,000 other of them, so we've got 5,000 Russian humanoids that land all over New York, New York City. Even though that, that Russian hum humanoid understands the English language and may very easily be able to also understand Spanish and maybe some other languages that are that it will hear in, um, the, in the Manhattan Air area, let's say that there are some, there's a group of actors that are playing on, an, on a Broadway or off-Broadway show in a Shakespearean show. And they are walking through Central Park and they are speaking in Shakespearean English, which happens to be one of the languages that does not understand. It's not one of those 200 languages it knows everything about. And so it, it is having a very difficult time now saying, I know I don't know what they're saying. So it is now in a perplexed state of not knowing if it should steal a car and, and drive away, if it should shoot them, if it should go up to them and be comrades with them, or if it should hide away. It's got no idea. It's got no ability for sentience. That is why right now for every humanoid in this hypothetical, Every, every, every U.S. humanoid, every Chinese humanoid, every Russian humanoid, there is a human being somewhere in the world that is looking at everything coming in to those humanoids. So the system at this point is very easy. We just cut all the comms, all the communication between all of those 5,000 Russian humanoids to Russia, and it, they will get pretty confused pretty, pretty fast. Within a few hours, they'll all be confused as to things that it just does not understand from a sentient point of view. Herein is the motivation for the militaries in all three of these countries to bring sentience into its AI systems that are embedded in its um, humanoids for fighting, for... Um, for uh, medic, medical, and for nursing. And so, so I hope that that hypothetical shows you there um, that why there needs to be a human being that can just say, hey, that's a bunch of kids coming out of a Shakespearean play.
<laughs> they right. just, just leave them alone. But for a computer, even the most prolific computers that we have in the world nowadays, it will not have any ability to be able to look at that and to be able to say, oh, they're just kids, just move away. It's, we, are, we are so far away and we are not able to integrate. We, we believe very fiercely that we are not able to integrate sentience into whatever operate into whatever AI system that is um, that is actually running all of its all of its um, all of itself. Gotcha. So you, in your mind, based on what you've seen, I mean, we're still quite a ways away from that, right? We're good at making robots and machines and computers that do specific things, but that sentience is still fairly elusive to us at this point. Um, we've been working on it for about four or five years now, and we are testing some different systems. The, is, the issue is how do we test them to see, to be able to have the abstract thoughts? So it's an issue of how do we determine the growth of the sentience and what testing do we do and 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 how do we get that input into a into a machine uh, and for that machine to have a sense of self and a sense of id and to be able to look at the world around it and look at to what its brain is I'm saying to it i don't think gotcha. um, it'll be a far fetched proposition that in eight to 10 years time, we will have military nurses that are able to kid around with, with old soldiers or leave them alone or know when to sit down with them and listen to their heartbroken story or to look at their pictures um, or to just say hi and then leave. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's crazy. So how does this impact? I mean, obviously the military implications of this are huge, but when we think about maybe the, the commerce space, you know, finance, marketing, um, how do you see all of this start to impact? You know, is it going to be one of those situations that everyone talks about where AI takes all the jobs or is it going to move people into new jobs? I guess, what, what are your thoughts, opinions uh, based well, on kind of your experience? There's, there's a lot of questions there. Well, to, as far as finance is concerned, we don't have to have sentience with that because we're just looking at numbers and predicting things. Um, but as but as far as um, driverless trucks, I think that with this bottleneck that we have in the in the United States right now, I can I can tell you right now that there are emails flying across every professor's AI, every AI professor's emails now saying, "What have you done any research and driverless trucks?" And do, what are you? So there's this, there's a big world right now saying, "Can we get the drive? Can we get trucks to be able to drive?" And there we, I think, it would behoove the systems to be ha- to have them have a little bit of sentience there, not just a machine that can drive. Uh, We do still have some huge problems with driverless cars and driverless trucks at this point, and they are not the problems that you think they are. Um, With some of my 
very good friends, having gone to law school with me, that are in the San Jose area. It is not a secret that um, Tesla and Apple and Google, with their driverless cars, um, have all joined. And I believe Amazon is has got something to do with this as well. They have joined together and asked Congress for advice as to when a car has to make a decision between who it will kill. And there the use case is you have a car driving across the, a, a bridge and the car is driving at 55 miles an hour, which is exactly the speed limit. And um, there's a truck coming up 50 yards away. So, they, so the truck and the car are on a path towards each other at 110 miles an hour. And there's no way for the car to swerve and there's no way for the truck to swerve out of the way. And a little girl comes running out into the road chasing a ball in this hypothetical, somehow she's in the middle of the bridge. The car does not have enough time to do anything but either hit the girl or miss the girl and go slamming into the truck. If it hits the girl, it'll most likely kill the passenger that is in the car. If it hits the truck, it'll absolutely kill the passenger in the car and most likely kill the truck driver. You see, the lawyers at Apple and Google Cars and Tesla do not want to have the engineers program their cars in these kinds of, of scenarios to do one or the other because it will open up enormous lawsuits. So they're saying right. to Congress, tell us. And Tyler, what do you think is the ability, is the chances that a person running for re-election in the Senate is going to say, hey, I'm going to say run over the baby girl. So it's been stuck in Congress now for about three years. And until it comes out, there's going to be enormous reticence for the lawyers to allow these cars to go out without knowing, without having guidance from Congress. So that is one thing, but that is not the sentience. That is going to be pure AI driving the car. It's, it has got millions and millions of hours of driving through the streets of all the other cars. And it's, and as all the other driverless cars go through the streets and see stoplights and people crossing the street and dogs in the street, it is all of those cars are learning how to drive better, but there is no sentience. There's no human being there. Sure. No, that makes sense. And really, I mean, that's the trolley problem, right? Like, you know, do you, yeah. Like if you're on a trolley, do you pull the lever and, you know, switch tracks? Do you let it go? I mean, those are all, yeah, very, uh, I guess, complex ethical uh, and moral dilemmas that, you know, we as, as humans have to face. And then now we have to learn to program that into software. Yeah. And even as a human, what, mm -hmm. do you, what do you do? Because if you don't want to kill, if you're the one driving across the bridge, you are probably going to ride over that uh, hypothetical three, three-year-old girl rather than kill, kill yourself. Um, there is some research 
that is going into this area saying, and they're looking at, um, at Auschwitz, there is a testing, there, there are records that, that, that professors are able to study that goes into um, during the war when the, when the Jew- Jewish people were, were pushed off the trains into Auschwitz, they separated the mothers with their children. The Nazis sep- separated the Jewish mothers with their children. And they recorded when a mother was told in the horrific situation that she could only keep one child and she was thinking that the other child would be put to the gas chamber, they invariably kept the older child and let the younger child go, which doesn't seem to make sense initially. And they all seemed to do this, so there wasn't an ability for them to conspire against one another or with one another. And the theory is that they had more emotional resources invested into the older child. So their synaptic activity in their brain and their consciousness was stronger with the older child than with, say, a four-month-old baby who they didn't really have that, who they, but this is only theory. So there are some mathematicians in our world that are saying that may be a way to, to look at what a driverless car is um, going to do, but it is far from being able to be settled in. But again, that is going to be at a crossroad of where we look at um, artificial consciousness or sentience with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah. So Rory, you know, as somebody who studies this all day, how do you, um, I guess, how do you stay optimistic about the future? Right. Cause you know, we talk about, you know, combat robots and uh, you know, these big ethical decisions. Um, I guess what's your view, you know, whether maybe optimistically or, or pessimistically, like is, as we move into this, is this something generally that's good for humanity? Is it just a tool that we have to shape? Like, I guess, how do you maybe personally or within I, your department or other yeah, folks sure. approach um, this? With those of us that are working on this, all of us have been in um, have been in neurosurgery wards, or we all are computational neuro- neuroscientists. We all do AI. We all are in the medical world as we got as well as we are in the microprocessor and computing world. And from my point of view, just completely just me as Rory Lewis, uh, having been in a war, having been in special forces and having worked with right up to this day, working with 10th group or working with uh, some of the other guys that are in um, Fort, Fort Bragg. It is a nice thing to know that these human beings are not going to be in harm's way. It's going to be, Hmm robots killing other robots, which I think quite personally is better than this is. uh, And of course, this is saying, this is not at all saying that we, that we should have wars. Sure. Completely against wars. Um, But at this, but at the same time, um, being able to have the opportunity 
to be able to start working on this and knowing that they are also going to be looking at the nurses, which is which in the end is going to spit out at the other end, going to a question from three questions ago. At the other end of the spectrum, we are going to have companions that are going to be able to be with all with older folks or with um, people that have got disabilities or with people that are blind or so it's not just going to be a machine that does it, but a system that starts to learn how to interact with that human being to keep them happy. So I am optimistic about the future. Uh, I see sense sentience and this work we're doing in artificial consciousness as being something that is going to put machines into a place that for many of the lonely people in the world or those with disabilities will be able to have help. Now that makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I mean, we, this lots of good questions, but I know we're kind of getting to the end here. Um, I guess other, you know, closing thoughts, like if you, you know, hadn't the opportunity to give, uh, uh, you know, lay people like myself who don't understand this, just, you know, how can either we use AI, right. Or think about AI or not worry about it. Like any closing, you know, kind of open-ended, but closing thoughts on like what the future looks like here. Well, as far as AI taking over the world and get going to the place where we can have an Arnold Schwarzenegger, we are just so far away from there. We are mm-hmm. not even close to being able to have, as the three-star general said, anything beyond my th- three-year-old granddaughter with an iPad. We aren't even sure. up there yet. And as, synth- as synthesis in sentient understanding grows, Um, we, the engineers and the professors that are making these machines, are going to keep into their brains will not be able to fathom things that we don't want them to to think about Um, in the same way that a dog does not know how to do Fourier transforms. Um, Sure. these, These machines will not be able to think about anything else except watch a patient. What is the best way to optimize the patient's happiness? They don't know that downstairs there's a car who's, that's parking meter has, ex, has expired. They've got no idea that the car's parking meter has expired. Whereas a nurse, a human nurse, will say, geez, I... I only paid for three hours for the shift, and now they've asked me to do over, over, overtime. I'm going to have to put money into my parking meter. These machines will never be able to think about a car or what a car is or um, whether it's in a parking lot or whether they need to put money into it. They will never think about anything else except what are the thousands of other machines learning and training about how to up the wellness and the well-being of my patients, and that's it. Even with their sentient consciousness, that is gotcha. the scope of what they do. So there's not a concern with really with sentience that it's going to be become suddenly self-aware and start learning about all these other things it wasn't programmed to do. That's not a big a big fear or concern that you guys have as you no, kind of program them. We we can barely. Um, we can barely get it to 
understand what are the facial expressions of of a patient. Are, are they asleep or are they dead or are they blink blinking or are they in pain and they've got their eyes closed and they are they're scrunching their eyes up in massive amounts of pain. As a human being, we'll quickly see this person is, is in pain. Uh, mm-hmm. To just get machines to work with different operating systems and to be able to understand that a patient is in pain, we are, we are far from there yet. Gotcha. No, that, that makes tons of sense. Wow. I, it was really good to talk to you. Um, thank you for you know, spending a few minutes. Well, thank with you me. very much. I, I, I appreciate being here and I look forward to uh, speaking with, with you again, Tyler. Thank you.